how do we reach people who may be extremely different from us ideologically, politically, and have them think critically about the issues that we're thinking critically about, especially when it comes to women in science? And how do we get them to trust what we're saying and believe what we're saying? How would you start answering this question? When it comes to having these conversations, it's like very dependent on the type of person you're talking to, the relationship you have with them, and then their prior beliefs about certain things. And it can be hard to understand all three of those things and then tackle each one in a separate way. I like what you said with there's like those three things that you need to know about who you're talking to. And I feel like a lot with talking about difficult issues with someone that you know you're going to disagree with is trying to control the variables of how they could react. It's all of these questions that we've been asking and more that are a big part of what we talked about with today's guest. Welcome to Propelling Women in Power, a podcast about the careers of women in energy at the Wisconsin Energy Institute on the UW-Madison campus and our sister institution, the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center. I am Meg Riker and I am a junior undergraduate student studying civil engineering. I am a science writer intern with a passion for meeting people from different scientific disciplines and sharing their stories. And I'm Michelle Chung, a senior undergraduate student studying biology and environmental studies. I love finding fun ways to highlight the research and people here at WEI and GLBRC. Here, we talk about women scientists and engineers' career paths, the obstacles they have faced, and most importantly, their advice for young women scientists and engineers. It is our goal to highlight their individual experiences, mentors, and work-life balance while seeking advice for young women in science and asking the question, who and what facilitated your success? Today, we talk to Donique Broussard, who is the chair and professor of the Department of Life Sciences Communication at UW-Madison. And she talked a lot about, as a scientist who studies social phenomenons and people, how we negotiate big things that are happening to all of us in our society, these challenges, um, and making space for contentious parts of society that may make people uncomfortable. So it was really fascinating to get her perspective on how to have these social conversations and what structures and implicit things need to be a part of the system in order to actually see change in people's beliefs. Let's take it away with Dominique. So I'm Dominique Brossard. I'm professor and chair in the Department of Life Sciences Communication here on campus and also an affiliate of the Wisconsin Energy Institute, the whole Center for Technology Studies and a bunch of other things. And basically anything that uh, is at the intersection of science, media and policy, uh, you know, is interesting to me as I study how people feel about controversial science and technological issues. So that can include issues in energy, for example, if you talk about how to use, uh, you know, new uh, nanotechnology related technology in solar panels for sustainability, to things such as genetic engineer, human genetics, and so on. So basically any type of uh, uh, issue that includes ethical, legal, social, and technical component, as far as science and technology, uh, is uh, related to uh, my research. 
Well, it's a lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah. I'm very busy. If you wouldn't mind diving into like one of those topics, just so we can get more detail into your research. So I'm a uh, quantitative social science. I'm a community communication scientist that relies on models to predict attitudes and behaviors. So if you think in terms of what makes somebody somebody, you have their education background, you have their personality, you have the people they interact with, but you also have a lot of components that are related to their values, their worldviews, the way they feel about the world. So try to put all of these in a model to explain how they feel about the specific issue will lead to what we call, you know, a predictive model in, in statistics. So one thing that we do, for example, is try to predict why people would not believe that climate change is linked to uh, human behavior. How can you, once you have taken into account, you know, the impact of their socioeconomic status, how much education they have, what part of the country they live, and so on, what are the belief systems that I can explain why they feel that way? So that's one of the examples. And this relies in a big uh, um, public opinion survey with representative sample of the population. But we also do research at the local level to uh, you know, induce social change. So another example, with one of my grad students, we're interested in community engagement and, and foster policy change for sustainable issues, for example. So Beloit, the community of Beloit, has uh, a proclamation to be carbon-free for a long time from now. And we're trying to help a number of organizations in the Beloit uh, region to mobilize to make that a reality. So how do you go from a stated goal to actually policy action? And how can you, uh, you know, involve stakeholders at the community level to make sure that actually go into a direction that's good for everyone. So those are two examples, one at the national level, one at the local level. I'm curious to see how you quantify how someone feels. That's a very good question. Yeah. Well, you know, you have what we call the indicators and you, you build the scales. And so scale will be a number of items, a number of statements that you ask people to, to, to answer that have been identified usually based on qualitative research. So like that's what we call, you know, uh, 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 case studies or focus groups or interviews that go to the underlying metal models that people have when they think about an issue. And so based on that, you're going to build a scales that have several statements that are supposed to, uh, you know, complement each other. And the way you measure if those are good is by making sure they are reliable and they're valid. Reliable means that if I take a, a, a sample of the population, random sample, that's exactly the same as another random sample, right? They should because they're random. The way they answer those questions, they distribute it the same way. I have a normal, normal curve. So that's the reliability system. That's why you have several statements. So yeah. then validity <laughs> means that you, you want to make sure you measure what you want to measure. So it's the validity aspect of that. So we have some statistical techniques to do that. You correlate that with other things that are supposed to be linked to that. So imagine that I want to ask you how much you like a chocolate cake, you know, and that's what would be the, the statement we ask. How much you like a chocolate cake? And you would say, a lot. And then you would say, a lot. 
Well, that's actually maybe a very reliable question because you answer the same way to two samples of students here, but it's not valid because at the end of the day, you may like the chocolate cake because you love butter and that chocolate cake had butter mm. and you super into sugary things. <laughs> that's why you like the chocolate cake. So you need to have a way to measure, you know, uh, some, some a concept with all those variables that explain. So in, mm. my, in, in my example, butter, you know, chocolate, sugar, and so on, are all those various education and so on and so forth, that you take out of the equation. Because once you have controlled the fact mm -hmm. that you like sugar and you like chocolate, actually you don't like that cake because the rest is not something that you like. So that's kind of what we do at the psychological level. Okay, wow. I, I loved how you explained that. Explaining <laughs> it to me in terms that I know. I love chocolate cake, you're right. <laughs> um, okay, if we can go back to how you got to explaining chocolate cake to me right here. Where did your interest into looking at how people perceive things start? All right, so I'm going to give you the short version, but I apologize if it looks kind of long anyway. <laughs> so, and I'm going to start by, I was born, and you say, oh no, but it's actually relevant because I was born in Argentina from French parents. So I grew up in South America with French parents. So right away I was, you know, confronted with different cultures that were just but you know, like they were together, but they don't always mix. So I grew up speaking Spanish. I was not allowed to speak Spanish at home, all that stuff. And then I went to France after high school to go to a uh, biology and math and uh, an agronomical engineering degree. And then I did plant genetics, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't like working in a lab. I thought it was really boring, by the way. After a master's, I mean, no offense to anybody in a lab here, but it's not my thing to be stuck, you know, in a lab repeating all the time the same thing. So after my first degree, that degree, I went and worked for a big uh, management consulting called Accenture for five years, and it was in the public health, environmental sector. At that time, the French government was taking some of their divisions from the center state to, uh, you know, like the local state, the regions, and we were asked, tasked to help that transition. And it was in a division that called Change Management Services. And I realized that actually it was really hard to make people change. Mm -hmm. I was convinced that it was much better to do environmental issues and health at the local level. And those darn people didn't believe me. How come? How do they dare? I knew better. I was a scientist. I should. At least that was the way I was bringing this into uh, the equation. And because of that, I got interested in human psychology and why humans behave a certain way in the context of science, technology, and health. And I went back, I did my PhD at Cornell University. At that time, I was one of the first one that looked at that whole modeling approach to attitudes toward GMOs. And going back to my first statement about, you know, how people, uh, you know, didn't know how GMOs was related to society and so on, I was curious to hear that people actually in different parts of the world were really feeling very differently about that technology. And it went back to my whole uh, point about being born in Argentina and so on. Things that look good from a French side look bad, you know, in, in South America. Uh, you know, people in Argentina hated Americans, those darn Americans. Now in America, and I loved it, and I'm an American citizen. So, you know, like that whole idea that we bring our worldviews and our prior experiences and our background in issues that are relevant to, to, to us really kind of 
went together to actually define my research uh, uh, project. And that idea that, you know, it's not that people are right and wrong. It's just that people feel differently. And the reason why people feel differently is for us, the people that are trying to communicate or to actually reach out, it's our job to understand that. It's our job to listen. It's our job to actually make a way to measure all these things so we can, you know, make sense of those controversies at the end of the day to make a better place for all of us. And I think, you know, the, the, the Energy Institute is a good example of that. This is the idea that we want to make sure energy and so on is good for society, right? We don't want to just impose on people what we think is good. We yeah. want to work all together to make sure that it works out. So that, in a nutshell, is my journey. What other factors from you like as a person, as a woman, guided that journey? As a person, I was always interested in science and nature. You know, I was basically a nerd. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so that's a, that's the thing. As a woman, you know, like it's, you know, like interestingly enough, I don't even think as a woman. I mean, it was just as a person, as an individual, as what I liked, what I don't like. I mean, I always had like a very supportive family and I, I was never felt that I was either a woman or not a woman or whatever. You know, I was just a kid in the family. And also remember that I, I grew up always being a little different than everybody else around me because I was the one foreigner in the classroom. And then I lived four years in Ethiopia and then I lived in Senegal. So I was always like, just because of my parents traveling abroad, right? Uh, living abroad. So. The woman thing is interesting because I felt that was not a problem, but I felt like a woman when I came to United States. Mm. Like I felt like I felt that there was a lot of sexism in science and so on when I came to UW. And that it, it, it was weird to me because before, like when I was, for example, in France and I was in that engineering school, we were maybe like, you know, I don't know, maybe 8% women then. But that's what he was, you know, and actually he was just to say, and then when I went to that management consulting company, like the, the, the partners really clearly told us, you know, as young woman, you're not going to be felt as credible. So you need to actually know that and just like fight it and whatever. So to some extent it was, we knew there was problems and women in science so on was a problem. It was just clearly established. It was never kind of like, you know, oh, we are perfect, but then the real realization is that sexism still exists. Academia is a very sexist environment. And, and it's much better now that it used to, but look, we're 16 departments in CALS and there's only two women that are chairs. Mm -hmm. Among all the professors at UW, mm -hmm. only 20% are full professors, uh, women. So, so that, you know, it's like the academic environment make me feel, this is really a problem, but you pretend it's not. You know, kind yeah. of like, we're better than anybody else in this environment, there's no problem, mm -hmm. but there is. I'm just saying as a culture. Uh -huh. And it has changed recently, but I'm talking, I've been at UW since 2004. So I think it's going in the right direction. But, uh, you know, the, the fact to be, uh, you know, I don't think my career, the fact that I'm a woman, you know, I don't think it has made me think this type of career, but certainly it has me 
making sure that the women that work with me get the support they need. You made me aware of the importance of like be building allies and relying on male or female, whatever, like a, a, a network of supportive people. And that, uh, that's something that I think, you know, everybody has to do, like build a support of allies and so on. The, the, the big change between like the U.S. and other places? I mean, I'm not saying the U.S., I say the Midwest. The Midwest. <laughs> okay, you said the Midwest. Midwest. Is the de denial factor? I don't think it's a denial factor. I think it's a, a um, I don't know if these people are trying to be nice or and mm. then they're not overtly anti-something. Yeah. But, you know, like, and uh, racism is the same issue. Uh, there was right. a very interesting thing posted about, you know, that the back protest of uh, 1969 on campus, you know, and uh, and some kids, you know, coming from Georgia and so on, look, saying that they think this is going to be a non-racist place. Yes, it is. But it's not to your face. To some extent, bizarrely, when you have issues such as sexism, a woman in science, so on, when it's overt, it's better because you can react and you right. can, you know, take a stand. And, but when it's kind of like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. insidious, it's more complicated. But, uh, you know, I think obviously for you, young woman in science, I mean, the things are better than they used to and we're going in the right direction. So I want to be positive. And, yeah. and I think, you know, like we, we are, there's still work to do, but we are, it's going the right direction. So that's really nice. And, uh, and I'm really happy to see you both here doing this because to show that there's a voice and that we can all together go in the right direction. You know, there is something that's called social conformity, right, mm -hmm. in social psychology. And we social norms are a very important, uh, you know, feature of human beings. We are social animals, right? So, like, human beings live together, and they tend to do what's expected of them. And, uh, and let's say in, in a lefty progressive city, there's some expectations that you behave a certain way, that you know that you are sustainable. But that doesn't mean that everyone to their core have those values actually as their own. They may display them because what's, that's what they're expecting from them from a social conformity uh, uh, perspective. So I think that's also the issue that we have here. Mm -hmm. And it's just an, something that, you know, human beings display. So you mentioned that, like, you think it's getting better. Um, in what ways do you think it's getting better? And like, what would you want to change? I think it's getting better because of things like you're doing together today, you know, like a podcast giving voice to women, uh, building, you know, allies, younger uh, women, understanding that they can, you know, hear from others and so on. There is that cohort effect that's very important, right? And also because, uh, you know, you have policies that beginning to be in place to make sure that, uh, you know, <laughs> that uh, abusive uh, behavior or like, you know, hostile environment, all that stuff is not happening so th this is important you know like you don't change unfortunately and that's uh, gonna sound sad but there's something in persuasion that we call the carrot and the stick right so the carrot is like i'm gonna make people do something the way i want them to do because it's good for them Let's say, you know, like uh, I'm going to make them work very hard to get tenure, but at the end of the day, they're going to have tenure, they're going to have more money, they're going to have whatever, whatever. So that's the carrot. The stick is that, look, if you don't behave the way you're supposed to behave, there's going to be consequences. So 
when we started having laws that said that smoking, you know, was not allowed in uh, inside, you know, a lot of people were against it because of freedom of doing whatever they want, right? Smoking. But the policy was it's not allowed to do it. Slowly but surely, people change their behavior. So there was different ways to actually, you know, make them change their behavior, the carrot and the stick. So for women in science, I mean, if it's, a, you know, it's not tolerated and there's going to be consequences when things are done that, you know, that are not helping their career and so on, that, you know, uh, that, uh, that is not helping them being the best they can in that environment for whatever reason, you know, if there's no consequences, things will never change. But I think mm -hmm. we're beginning to see consequences. Is there anything like specifically where we could see a consequence and that could lead to change? Well, you know, I mean, I've been part of the Women in Science mentoring program here at UW when you have a, uh, a young assistant professor that come, they pair that person with an older tenure female mentor to kind of like, they come and they can talk about things that have, you know, you're not in your department. You are, you can talk to somebody that's, uh, you know, like that's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is not involved in, in, the, in, the, in the departmental life. So, so like the mentoring science for tenure uh, women, for example, is like for the, the, the woman in science on tenure is one example. But I have heard a lot of uh, grad students that are in labs you know, where they feel there's like sexism in the lab. They're like one or two women in a lab and they feel that there is a problem because people do not take them, uh, you know, as much in consideration that the others. They're like, you know, the, it's going to sound horrible, but, the, you know, the professor is going to say, can you make coffee or like things like that. Mm -hmm. This is still existing. I mean, this is the 21st century. Well, now they can come to me. They can speak up. I can be loud. I can be very loud, you know, <laughs> and so like things like that. So it's by, by making these kind of things that even if there's policy in places where s sexism is not allowed, mm -hmm. there's still, there's still uh, settings where it still happens because if you're the only one and nobody noticed, you know, it's really hard. So I think by building those coalitions and the younger professors are not like that, right. and you know, the older generation is retiring. So things are only gonna be only better because I think, you know, new generations are different. What, what do you make sure that you do to support someone? You know, if you think in terms of why society reacts a certain way, right? I mean, we have ingrained stereotypes and all that things that make this history, you know, lead to society to a certain point. If you think in terms of women in general mm -hmm. in this country, uh, and again, I come from multiple cultures, so for maybe that's why I'm, I'm more aware of that when I came here. But I think, you know, I don't think the educational system in the United States as a whole train women to be very vocal. I don't think, and you know, like we, you heard all the stereotypes about, you know, like if a woman is like, they say she's a be something if a guy is like oh he's assertive you know this kind mm -hmm. of thing it's still it's still true so one thing that i'm very very um uh, careful about is really explain to my female grad students that they need to stand their ground mm -hmm. and teaching them that they need to actually believe in themselves the whole thing or like and we even keep on talking about the imposter syndrome thing and so and whatever it's like you know you are really good and if you're not as vocal as potentially a guy or whatever like but you know <laughs> because they've been in this culture where they're like much more you know like likely to brand themselves in a positive way 
uh-huh. than a woman, well, you need to do it. So I forced them to yeah. be loud, to be they, pre- they present, you know, they, for the job talks, we, we make them rehearse. So they're really like sure and so on. I think it's a cultural thing also mm-hmm. how women grow up in this country. And again, I'm making the, I'm talking about patterns. Obviously, okay, there's yeah. differences and so on, obviously. But I would say in general, I have, you know, observed that uh, the grad students that I have, the female, tend to be less, you know, sure of themselves mm-hmm. than their male counterpart. And maybe it's going to change. So, but uh, I, I think that was something that we need to all together work. Do you think it's as simple as telling them they can do it or is there more to it? In, in science education, there's something that's called experiential education mm-hmm. that you learn by doing. And, uh, you know, like one of my students, actually, she's in China. She just she's Chinese. She just found a job, actually. And and, you know, I told her and we told her multiple times. She's she's quite shy and she comes from a culture where you tend not to be vocal and you really respect authority. Right. Mm-hmm. So we actually told her, you know, imagine this is like a theater performance. You have a lot of actors when they're on stage, they behave in a way, you know, that's very different from what they do in their everyday life. But when you are in the classroom or when you are, uh, or like me now, I'm performing for you guys, right? So like, imagine that. So like, just imagine who you would want to be. And so one of my grad students, Chinese that now is is here. She says what she does. She imagined being me. She's like, <laughs> I remember Dominique in classroom. I'm like, I'm like that, and then I'm, like, you know, and then and so like she says, yeah, it's a performance. So yes, you can train people to be that way. Mm-hmm. You can like, obviously you don't want to make people change their personality and so on. But still, you know, like doing a uh, giving a job talk or or being in the classroom. At the end of the day, those are performance acts that mm-hmm. we do. For persuasive reasons, you give the job to get hired, you give the class to actually make the kids learn or the students learn. So they are, you have to actually make sure that you use the tools that you have as a human being to do that. I was different, like in a way, you know, like, or like the minority always, like I had to always be loud and I'm also the fourth of fourth children. So I had to be loud to have a piece of the chocolate cake. So <laughs> maybe that's part of it, right? We bring uh, all our background to the table. Uh, but uh, this is not to say that I have never like, you know, suffered for any discrimination based on my gender and so on. Is part of the step to making it better, like having that be out in the open? Yes. You know, like I think, you know, like like problems can be addressed when they're out of in the open. So if people mm-hmm. feel, you know, like are uh, have a hostile, intimidating behavior in the in the in the lab, they need to be vocal about it. If they, they need to to, and that's why it's important to have allies. Uh, you know, like mm-hmm. people you can go talk to and uh, that mentoring mentoring program or anything. And and it, it doesn't have to be only women, by the way. There's also obviously a lot of uh, of uh, of uh, uh, people on campus that are very supportive of, yeah. of diverse population. But I think it's important to actually have those networks and also for, for things to be to be in the open so we can address problems. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to, to promote change. Some of my friends that actually, they like look at me like I'm crazy. They, 
I get that a lot. The, so <laughs> I say, you know, I don't think you think so, but you're just mansplaining me. Mm. And, they, and they would say, no, I'm not, because I say, I'm like, well, I'm a communication scientist. You just disagree with me about how media portrays some things. Yes, you are. I said, well, if I was a woman, I would be mansplaining. No, I said, no, I wouldn't use the same term, but I would say something else. <laughs> so, you know, so I think like, you know, in a, in a, you can be joking about it, but you need to mm -hmm. make people aware of when you feel that, you know, and, and, you know, and maybe like, you know, we had the Me Too movement and so on. Mm -hmm. Are we overreacting right now? Potentially sometimes, but if one person out of one million overreacts, you know what, we had 2000 years or more before of, uh, of like abusive behaviors. So like, mm -hmm. I think the guys need to actually deal with it. <laughs> right? So I think, yes, we do yeah. need to be vocal to your point. Like step one, be vocal, make people aware. Like, where do you go from there? In the lab, in this institution, like in industry as well. Definitely in industry. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a big one. And you know, like, have a lot of uh, of former students that work in industry, and you know, they do face a lot of issues. I mean, the glass ceiling is still a problem. Like, women are still paid less than men, and so on. So they there's a lot of things to address. But again. I think we're moving the right direction, but I think we cannot become complacent because when you become complacent, then you lose the ground on the, what has been, has been uh, you know, achieved. And I th I'm very concerned about the effect of the pandemic on women in, in, in STEM, in the, at higher education and so on. And I've been part of different groups at the National Academy of Science looking at those effects and you know how the, the pandemic has affected women in STEM is a real one. You know, like uh, a lot of women had to actually take care of the kids at home. I have lost time in their research and so on and so forth. And they have been uh, more affected than and men generally, again, and these are patterns. So this is something that we need to be careful. We don't want to lose you know, the grounds that we had gained uh, because of the pandemic. So we cannot be complacent. Uh, something I'm balancing is whether to go into academia or continue um, my academic education or to go into industry after I graduate. Right. Um, and I'm wondering why you chose to go into industry and then return to academia. Yeah, so actually, you know what? I would advise everybody, like my, my own stake, my own like view on this is that uh, uh, going to grad school is a big commitment and uh, it's uh, you need to be sure you're going in the field that is really good for you and uh, going for a few years in industry or in the private sector may help you sort out exactly what you want to do and so you know like in engineering you may end up doing to a master's in environmental science or so on or whatever or you just staying at you with your engineering degree so i think like going a few years out of you know academia it's always good for everyone and as a matter of fact uh, the grad students that i see at the master level or even phd that have been in the real world for a while have a perspective that's interesting that uh, it gives them i think uh, you know like a, a more a, a different appreciation of what they do in grad school so for for me literally like the reason why i i went to the private sector is because i was born in the lab but that's uh, that's you know that's i guess a good good way to do it mm -hmm. but but uh, you know so if you go from undergrad to grad a lot of people do that directly because they're kind of scared to go in the, the real world and in the industry that's not a good reason 
because you can you go to industry you can always go back to grad school but you can never make up those years of like in your 20s being the private sector with a decent salary you know that you may actually appreciate so that's why you know look at the pro and cons and uh, and yeah yeah it's true that it looks like you delaying uh, a lot of people delaying the decision to actually go in because at some point you will have to find a job right so that's my take but again you know it's a, I think it's an individual choice and people have to weigh the pro and cons of both decisions. But my own personal uh, view on it is like it doesn't hurt to have a couple, at least a couple of years in the private sector before and if coming back to grad school. For me, you know, I'm a scientist that studies science communication, right? The yeah. S- the science of science communication. So then I have results that come out of my studies. I need to be able also for those results to be communicated to larger audiences, right? So I do that in different ways. I'm part of the Public Speaker Bureau at UW, so which is a number of professors that uh, you know that are in, uh, on a roster and that you know we talk to uh, to retirement homes, to uh, to uh, libraries, to, to you know to. to you name it, community groups, like they ask you, they, they, they ask you to do that. Uh, so that's one thing. You know, I'm on the extra database for the, for the, the university. Uh, so for example, for COVID, uh, anything related to COVID, because I study risk communication, right? Risk, why people fear stuff. So I'm part of their experts. So I talk to numerous journalists about that and so on. So I think as far as communicating my research is like the same way as everybody that is interested in outreach would do it. You try to explain it in ways that make sense to people and in a way that takes into account what we know about human psychology. So if I talk to different group of people, knowing where they come from, what's their background, what's their interest, I may not communicate the same way than I talk to others. So, for example, in the GMO context, you know, I was in a lot of talking to a lot of groups that were against GMOs. So obviously I'm not gonna tell them this is good. So, you know, like you try to, to tailor uh, your, your, your points to your audience, communication 101. Mm-hmm. Who are you talking to? Why are you talking to them? Why are you trying to achieve and how is the best way to do it? So you, like you have like those steps, like who are you talking to? Like, how do you communicate? How would you take like that framework in trying to address problems in inclusivity and diversity. Is it applicable in the same way? I think it is, but I'm not a, you know, a diversity or inclusiveness uh, expert, so that those are not the issue that uh, I have looked at. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people in social psychology that have, and they have looked at stereotypes and so on, and racial, what explains racial attitudes. So I'm in the science attitude field, but like it's the same, it is the same, you know, uh, process to some extent, trying to understand why people think or behave a certain way and then try to understand what are the best mechanisms to actually address that. So it's the same, the same logic. You mentioned imposter syndrome like very <laughs> briefly earlier. What are your thoughts on that? I think most human beings have that feeling sometimes, you know, like I think everybody in this room does. But uh, uh, what I, we have observed in academia, it seems that women tend to have it more than others. And people have debated that, mm-hmm. by the way. I don't want to open the door. So the whole debate is you know, imposter syndrome or not, yes, not. I think it's real. And from my own little, you know, 
my experience with people around me that women tend to display it more than men. So this is something that we need to work on and, uh, and, and make sure that, you know, it's addressed. You've observed women in academia. What would your advice be to them? To believe in themselves, you know. First of all, if they're here at UW, this is a really good school. So undergrad or or grads, you know, like if they if if you're here, is because you were accepting institutions and you're good. I mean, that there's no reason why you cannot be always good. But and then the second thing I would say is that do not do what others expect to you from you. So if you're a woman in science and you feel like you have to be very good at, at something. You know, maybe there's something else that you want to do in another science field or whatever. What I mean is like, just don't care about what people think. <laughs> it's like basically, it's like the advice I would do and believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, you are in control of your destiny. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are in charge of our own happiness and our own future. And we are the one who have to do it independently of what others feel. And it's easy to say, not so easy to do, but keeping on reminding yourself that also you're not alone and that you have others that are facing the same challenges and so on. But, you know, like stay, keeping quiet when you have challenge never helps. Mm-hmm. So really speaking up and try to find allies and sharing your problems and so on to move forward. After every single interview, I always just feel so ready to conquer the world. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I feel, I don't know, I feel like a mix of emotions. I feel it's like all these positive things that like I never f- feel in my academic experience. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's never, but not often enough to recognize that that feeling exists. Okay, so an example of that is like, last semester I got a 96% on an engineering exam, which has never happened to me ever. And I wrote that down, that score down on a (laughs) sticky note and I put it on my wall. Uh (laughs) And I kept it up there for the rest of the semester to be like, you are, you can do this, you can get through this. Mm -hmm. And I feel like these are like my sticky notes, like through my academic experience. Um, Or to like correlate with it Uh and to make it feel, you know, like I have some validity. Yeah. Um, the thing that I've discovered, maybe not discovered, rediscovered, or it's really just been emphasized through these interviews is the amount of like, just like saying you can do it mm-hmm. <laughs> changes things. And maybe we we ought to have more sticky note moments. Like before you even get that test score, it's like, yeah, like you can do it. I don't think that happens enough mm-hmm. and yeah it's clear that it doesn't happen enough that's like why it's everyone's advice mm-hmm. to younger women in stem believe in yourself believe in yourself another part of the conversation that i really related to she had all these other minoritized identities mm-hmm. growing up that being a woman wasn't really like that being a problem <laughs> yeah like that being like something that she felt left out because of wasn't really at the forefront. And I don't think how I was raised, it was because I was a I was an Asian in a small town. The the woman part was never really like big. Mm-hmm. Big like you're you're different because you're a woman. It's you're you're different because you're Asian. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like only now I'm really realizing 
the like intersections of that with being a woman, like with being Asian and a woman. I never had like those moments where it's like, this is happening because you're a woman. But there were implicit things that I'm realizing now where it's like, this is happening because you're an Asian woman. That's not what's talked about, the female intersection of it. That's a problem, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's putting one problem before another. You have to address both of them Mm -hmm. to address either of them at all. And this goes back to how we address complicated topics like diversity in STEM. Like Dominique said, there are so many factors, identities, different environments that can shape a person. It's all of those things and the intersections of someone's experiences that go into how someone might think about these topics. And that's our show. Thank you to everyone listening. We're your hosts, Michelle Chung. And Meg Riker. The show was produced by us and Mark Griffin and edited by us and Mark Griffin. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Dominique Broussard, the chair and professor of the Department of Life Sciences Communication at UW-Madison. And see you next time on Propelling Women in Power. What do you consider to be your superpower? Oh, well, you know, I would tell you that I have several superpowers and that uh, it depends on the context in which I deploy them. So you actually have to choose what superpower you're going to put into practice depending on where you are and with whom you are. I think one of my superpowers here, uh, when I'm at the public speaker bureau talking to, let's say, a bunch of people in rural Wisconsin, is that I have that weird French-Spanish accent. So I can tell them things, you know, where they're not going to think I'm that lefty professor because I'm different. So it gives me the superpower of not, or kind of being like, yeah, I'm from the cam- I'm campus, but I'm like kind of like external, you know, like, mm-hmm. so it gives me the superpower of being like, I'm not there, like, you know, pontificating as a lefty American. You know what I mean? So like that, that, that the, the fact that you're different can be a superpower, mm-hmm. you know, and I would say, uh, you know, being a woman can be a superpower as well. Depending of where you are, you establish linkages with people in a way that you may not in other instances. So it's a silly superpower, my, my accent, I guess. <laughs>